Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. I am very thankful that you all are joining us here as we worship sort of together in our homes. We're grateful for the body of Christ and for uh, the great effort that everyone is making to be together with one another through this difficult time of transition. This is not the same as regular church, but we are grateful for what the Lord does give to us. And, and as the Lord has put us in a difficult time of trial, uh, we need to feel that a little bit, that, that longing for the Lord's people, that, that the absence of the fellowship of the saints should affect us. Um, but at the same time, we are very grateful to be able to have some resources to share the word with our people and to direct our congregation on a Sunday like this one. In the second letter that the Apostle Paul writes to his young friend Timothy, some very practical instructions are given from one pastor to another. Paul urges Timothy to preach the word, to evangelize, to not be led astray by false teachers. And he sums it up with a phrase that you may remember. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, Be ready in season and out of season. We are certainly out of season right now when it comes to active ministry at First Family Church. So many things we want to be doing, we cannot do if we also want to be obedient to the Lord and honoring the rulers that He has placed over us, and if we want to protect the sensitive of heart and body from contracting this virus. And so we aren't able to do Kids Club together. We don't have the opportunity to go out and and reach out to the families who are drawn to the abortion clinic down the street. We have no gathering together for a meal and for conversation. These are things we just cannot do like we used to do. A great many of our endeavors have either been put on pause or have been adjusted and reimagined to some degree to fit within the confines of this new time. And yet we must continue to ready ourselves, to actively look for ways to grow in our faith, and our obedience to the calling which has made us who we are. Yes, church, pray that we will return to the normal way of life someday soon. But don't let the abnormal days that we are living through right now go to waste. We have no intention of wasting our time here this morning. Rather, we will faithfully open God's book and apply it to our meek hearts, confident that the Lord will not let the seed of the gospel that is sown in us yield a barren crop. We are drawing near to the end of this book of Ecclesiastes. Koholeth, the preacher of this book, is winding down his journey by instructing us to let the wisdom that we have gathered come to life, to affect us in measurable ways. There is a time to think, but mere thinking cannot take the place of faithful living. And so as we approach the end of the matter, Solomon will urge us to walk more resolutely in faith, having seen through the course of the book that we cannot navigate through life without trusting the only one who understands life and determines its meanings. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is where we are. I hope that you have your Bible there with you. I will begin to read, starting in verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. 
If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. As we scan the verses that we just read, we see several mentions of the effort that man might put forth in life. Verse 1 talks about casting your bread. We're going to make sense of that phrase in just a moment. Verse 2 talks about giving a portion of what you have, which is describing the act of benevolence, of charity. Verse 4 and again in 6 talks about sowing seeds and reaping a harvest in life, which is a generic term about productivity and labor. Verse 6 applies our hand to various kinds of work. So Solomon would have us think more about our labors, about our responsibilities, and about what we apply our energy to in life. In light of what we have come to observe about life so far in our philosophical journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, what might keep us from doing these things? Two potential roadblocks are considered in these verses. First, not knowing how our efforts will turn out. An unsurety about whether our efforts will produce some kind of fruit could keep us from actually engaging in effort and labor. And secondly, not knowing if the reward is worth the risk. Because we can't tell how things will turn out, is it worth doing them in the first place? And so the sermon that we're going to embark on today has a very basic structure. I'd like to lay it out for you to begin with. We're going to first address the text and seek to understand the Proverbs that are contained in it. We're going to draw conclusions from those Proverbs. We're going to think about what the main driving point of this section of Scripture is for Solomon. And then we're going to think about how we may personally apply those conclusions to our own lives of faithfulness. But before we do all that, let's bow our hearts and our minds in prayer. God, you are not man's theory. You are existence itself. You are life. You are truth. And we will only fumble our way through despair if we try to live this life apart from your hand. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to see that on our own we are lost, we are wandering, that on our own we cannot gain anything lasting from what we study here this morning, but if we have you, Lord, this can produce an eternal good in us. And so, God, we ask you to shine your light upon our hearts and our minds, O oh God. I pray the Spirit would wake us up to the things that are preserved here in your word. I do ask, Lord, that you, the immutable one, he who is impassable and unshakable, would reveal himself to us today, that you would, you would help us to be in awe and wonder of how great you are, Lord God. As the object of our worship and the foundation of our lives, I pray that you would shine brilliantly through the words of this text. Help us to understand well and help us to live this out in obedience to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Verse 1. To begin to understand what Solomon is getting at, we need to solve a mystery of cultural context. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? 
I vaguely remember reading this as a young man and thinking, what on earth is Solomon talking about here? Are we feeding ducks? Are we throwing a bag of Wonder Bread into the Pacific to see what will happen? No. Here Solomon is very likely including an ancient Arab proverb for us to chew on. Our efforts and our energies could be focused only on what is right in front of us, in the bread that we make with our own hands and eat for basic survival, or our bread and energy could be used for a venture that is much bigger, a venture that requires thought and planning and comes with a certain degree of uncertainty. The Arabian trade market often involved loading up resources on a ship and sailing off into unknown storms and challenges to a faraway land where goods could be sold or traded for things that were largely unavailable in the arid deserts of the Middle East. Most civilizations engaged in this kind of commerce. Consider this note about Solomon's actions that's recorded in 1 Kings 10. It says, For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold and silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. See, trade by ship was high risk. It was impossible to guarantee that nothing would hinder the journey or put that initial investment at risk. It would be much safer to just be satisfied with the sure thing, with the bread that you can easily make at home. But casting bread upon the waters, in other words, taking the risk of a greater reward by sending your investment out on a journey and trusting that God in His sovereignty will carry you through any set of circumstances, that is the favorable state of mind, argues Solomon here. Remember our, our two roadblocks to action. Roadblocks that can hinder us in our responsibilities. Not knowing how our efforts will turn out and not knowing if the reward is worth the risk. Solomon is aware of these fears in man, but he urges us to push past them. He encourages us to look forward with expectation. Notice, for you will find it after, what? Many days. So there's a sense of patience because the reward is not immediate. We will find it after many days of waiting. And the preacher won't let this apply only to enterprise as well, to striking it rich and turning a profit. He expands the boundaries of this attitude of trusting in God's greater knowledge and insight to the arena of benevolence in verse 2. Here we're told not to hesitate in giving a portion of what we have for the good of someone else who may need help. Continually thinking through the hard questions of life can make us oblivious to the practice or to the practical needs of those who are around us. Solomon would not have us so caught up with our own pursuit of understanding that we overlook the opportunities of love that exist right before us. For you do not know what disaster may come upon the earth, he warns. Now this phrase should impact us in both an outward and an inward way. When disasters come upon the earth, the vulnerable are usually impacted to the greatest degree, aren't they? We see that clearly right now. In the last week alone, over 5.2 million Americans filed for unemployment, a figure that was only slightly down from the week before. 
Some estimate that the unemployment rate in America may be as high as 16% right now, which would be the highest rate since World War II and would be well north of the 9.9% high water mark that was struck in 2009. How does one who follows God respond to that severe of a need? By looking for ways to share a portion of the blessing that God has given to them. 1 John 3, 17 through 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There is a secondary benefit, though, to this kind of sharing. When you show love to your neighbor, when you care for their needs and supply from your resources what they lack, then it often makes your neighbor eager to look out for you. Proverb 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed, meaning that God will see the good that you have done to others, and he will then take care of you through others when you are struggling, when you are in need of help. We don't love others only for the reciprocation we may one day receive from them, but that reciprocation is a hallmark of right fellowship and healthy community. When we consider the impact our bread might have beyond ourselves, we strengthen the people around us, and love is given greater opportunities to bloom in the community of believers. Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us not practice that generosity with a stingy heart, friends. It says, To seven or even eight This is a common Hebrew construct, which basically means even beyond what you would have expected, give of what God has given to you. Seven was a number of completion in the Hebrew canon. So an eighth expression of generosity goes beyond social expectations. Do you remember at the end of 1 Corinthians, where Paul in chapter 16 urges his Corinthian friends, put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's urging them to think about the other churches, many of whom are going through deep trial, and many of whom are very impoverished right now. He's saying, put some of your abundance aside in a special fund, so that when I come, I can take that back to your brothers and sisters who are hurting. Consider how much we have prospered, church. Consider how well we are doing even the poorest among us. We are rich in opportunity, aren't we? We are blessed by the community of saints. We enjoy so much freedom and so much abundance. Can we dare to ignore how he has already prospered us? Or even worse, do we dare to complain because someone has more than we do? Ephesians 1 reminds us that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How little have we lost, even though the pandemic crisis, considering we have been given great riches of Christ's grace, 
we have so much to give to others still. Who among us doesn't have something wonderful to share with his neighbor? Who We of all people, Christians, can afford to risk taking a loss by being generous to one another, especially in light of the fact that we are looked after by a Father in heaven who has limitless resources. We should of all people be the most bold in risking what we have for the sake of those who have not. As we move on to verse 3 and consider the progression of Solomon's thought here, there are two natural events referenced to display the comprehensive government that God exercises over his creation. If the clouds are full of rain, says Solomon, they empty themselves. If a tree falls to the south or the north, wherever it falls, there it will lie. This might seem just sort of like basic, obvious observation who is in charge of these kinds of things, and the trillions of other examples of what seem to us to be random occurrences that are governed by the natural laws of, that God has written. With a wink, Solomon points heavenward once more. God is the one who is in charge of these things. Not you, not me, not any earthly government, not the consensus of the population of people. Nothing mortal, nothing artificial is in charge of these things. God is in charge of these things. And our scope of understanding is so minute that we may look upon the workings of nature and and think that we could do it better. We might think, what a waste that God would let the rain fall in the middle of the ocean that is already so full of water when the place that I live is suffering through a terrible drought right now. What a waste. Or we might think, what a waste that that this great tree falls in the forest far away from any human eyes and simply rots there rather than being harvested and used for some useful building project. If I were in charge, I'd surely do things differently. Friends, if we were in charge the world would almost immediately grind to a halt. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Our words are empty babble in comparison. Though many things seem random to us, there is purpose in each one of them. Purpose that we don't quite grasp and that God doesn't have any obligation to explain to us. The vast number of events are governed with an awareness that we cannot comprehend. And yet all the natural processes play out in such a way that the creation continues on in harmonious order. And this despite the fact that it has been infected by our sin and our rebellion against God. Our sin, of course, is the reason why there is death in this world. It's the reason why viruses are something we even have to contend with because we have ignored the commands of a life-giving God. And the consequence of that is not only physical death, but spiritual death, detachment from the source of real life that we were designed to rely on every hour of every day. Rather than being frustrated that God doesn't bother to explain everything, in his complex world, we would benefit from simply trusting that this God who has thus far sustained us will continue to do so as we move forward in faith. Verse 4 constitutes a warning about being overly concerned with how things will turn out, which is something we have far less control over than we think that we do. 
Ecclesiastes 11.4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What is that talking about? It's talking about a farmer who looks out at the work that needs to be done on his farm, but he sees a multitude of excuses why he shouldn't go put his hand to the work. Man can always find an excuse to not work, can't he? I've already done my part. I don't, I don't know why you want me to pitch in. Or, I'm not the best man for the job. There are, there are other people far more qualified than me. Why, why would you want me to pitch in right now? Why would you want me to do that work? Or, or the, the, the classic, I would love to help right now, but I've got this other thing that's, that's really important that I'm doing. Or I've got to save my energy for something important that may come up. If I do this work right now, then I'll be so worn out I won't be able to do the things that I, I might really need to do later on. Man can always find an excuse to dodge work. And if I can make my laziness look like caution and sensibility, then others might even applaud me for being lazy. And that's a double win, right? Even when the wind is not blowing too hard, and even when the clouds don't look like rain, we can always find a potential roadblock that we might use to justify putting work off until later. An insistence on complete assurance and understanding before we start our work is a demand for false security. We cannot know every detail of life, yet we must maintain forward progress or risk doing nothing out of fear, out of worry, out of anxiety, out of over-planning. There are proper times to wait, of course. But if we hesitate every time we see a potential complication, then important work that must get done will never be completed. There is always going to be some excuse ready to be employed as our justification for not doing what we know in our hearts really needs to be done. Without just cause, there is no excuse to delay or to neglect our duties that will satisfy the Savior. Verses 5 and 6 build upon this humbling reality and spur us on to a right response to the principles that are being laid out by Solomon. There exists an endless number of mysteries in the physical world that we live in, but here in verse 5, the miracle of life and the development of an unborn child is used as a prime example. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Solomon draws our attention to the very dawn of life here. When God by his creative power speaks and the soul of man is awakened. Study the human anatomy all you want. We cannot completely grasp why and how life springs forth the way that it does. What keeps an organism together and gives it its distinct personality and set of traits and tendencies. We can't quite grasp these things. This knowledge is the sole possession of the triune God. How can we fool ourselves into thinking that we can and must understand every detail of the workings of the world that we live in? All of life needs faith to function. For it is God who makes and sustains everything. And if we fail to come to terms with that reality, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to live up to an expectation that we can never achieve. 
according to our own limited power that will always fall short of what we desire. You do not know the work of God who makes everything. You don't know as much as you think you do about the work that God does. Nor can you. Nor do you need to. And this is the great relief of what Solomon is driving at here in this passage of Scripture. You don't need to know everything. You don't have to have complete understanding because God already does. Though we cannot fully understand what will happen or why God allows it to come to pass, we must press forward in active obedience to Him, to the responsibilities that God has called us to, and trust that God's results are best for us. God alone has complete understanding, and He has given you very limited responsibilities along with the power to handle them if you place your faith and trust in Him. Commentator Michael Eaton says, The life of faith does not remove the problem of our ignorance. Rather, it enables us to live with it. Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It does not abolish it. In fact, that mystery can become to us one of our greatest joys if we learn to put our faith and trust in what God is surely doing. Solomon's concluding instruction is this. Sowing will come with its inefficiencies. But if you do not sow, there will be no good reaping. You've got to move forward with life, even if you can't anticipate every outcome, even if you can't guarantee a successful return for your efforts. In the morning of life, when you are young, do not neglect to acknowledge the power and sovereignty of God. You need Him now, though you have not yet seen the extent to which you must rely upon Him. Trust God when you are young. Sow your seed and labor in the responsibilities that He has lined out for you in His Word. Trusting that the harvest He determines will be exactly what you need it to be. And in the evening of life, as you grow older, as you have gained a more full understanding of existence, as perhaps some of the idealism that you carried when you were a younger man or woman has been tempered by the reality of practical life and your own limitations. Do not in this later phase of life withhold your hand from doing what God has instructed you to do. Don't retire from faithfully serving the Lord God. We will take courage if, through it all, through our stumbling and uncertainty, as we walk forward one step at a time, we never lose sight of the fact that God has sovereign grip on all that is beyond our grasp. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God's word never returns void. And here the, the phrase, the word of God, according to Isaiah, means everything that he declares will come to pass. That includes his revealed will, 
what we have written down for us in the Holy Scripture. And it also includes the aspects of His will that He has chosen not to reveal to us. God will say, He declares, and so it will be. His word goes out, and it is accomplished. And it is always good. So do not withhold your hand. Do not forsake action just because you lack complete understanding or surety. Now this call of action is not the same as a certain shoe company slogan, just do it. Just do it is a command without a purpose. Nike doesn't care about why. They just assume you make up your own why. All Nike knows is that if you're not doing it, then you're not wearing out your shoes. And if you're not wearing out your shoes, you're not buying more Nikes. And Nike isn't making stacks of cash. They want you to do it because they want to profit from you doing it. So Nike doesn't really care or concern itself with the why. In fact, the world is not able to adequately answer the why questions of life. Why should I just do it? Why should I do anything for the sake of man's further evolution? Should that be the motivating power behind my activity in life? Should I do it for the sake of a better society? If so, according to whose standard? Which one of the billions of us gets to determine what is better or what is worse? The godless world can only find motivation and the ultimately cheap and temporary cause of because it makes me happy. But there is a much greater why. Why should I engage in hard work? Why should I give to those who have needs? Why should I sow even though I'm not sure I'll reap? Why should I apply my hand to hard work even if it might not benefit me directly? Because though I am not sovereign... The God that I serve is sovereign. And he is making all things work together for the good of those who love him. <clears throat> we are not designed, friends, to sit by idly. We are not designed to do nothing. We are designed to bear God's honorable image. We were not created to know everything. We were created to be in awe of the one who knows everything and to give him the worship that he deserves. Let's conclude by considering how this principle applies to our life as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ. It applies to faithfulness itself. Have you surrendered your life to Christ Jesus? Have you seen the reality of your own sin? Have you seen the sacrifice that Christ made by going to the cross willingly and suffering like a criminal, like a sinner, in the place of sinners? Have you heard the word preached that brings hope, which reveals to us that though our sin is great and the consequence of it is dire, that there is a free gift of grace that God is willing to give to anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ? If you have heard the gospel and it kind of scares you a little bit, that Jesus is willing to be your Lord and nothing else. That he says, let me be your king and I will save you from your current state. If that scares you a little bit, is it possible that you've been using the question mark 
as an excuse to not put your faith and hope in Him? Is it possible that you've been hiding behind unanswered questions that may or may not have answers out there because you are afraid of letting God be God? You're not ready or willing to relinquish what seems to be control of your life. Friend, how much control do you really have over your life? As you have tried to govern yourself, as you have ignored the law of God and walked in your own way, how much control has that really brought to your existence? What is holding you back from trusting the only one who really knows the depth of your heart and yet would still love you though he knows how black and dark it is? What keeps you from saying yes to Christ? There is a cost to discipleship. You have to be willing to exchange the mirage of self-control for a new life of righteousness and dependence on the one who can save. You must learn to trust that Jesus is superior and that you cannot live without him. It is worth it to hand over your freedom to him. He will not steer you wrong for the freedom that he has to give back to you is greater than anything you could try to scratch out for yourself. Ask yourself this important question this morning. Do you think you can truly achieve what you want in life apart from the God who sustains life? Do you honestly believe you can live in the existence that he governs, that he rules over, and pretend as if he's not even there? Do you think that the very life that you are living right now, that he sustains, that you can somehow come to satisfaction and peace and contentment? and do so while completely ignoring him and disrespecting the law of morality that he's given to you? Do you think that's even possible? Solomon says it is not. Because what you want is to not die. Or even if you've convinced yourself that, that maybe 80 or so years on this earth is enough, you'd be content and satisfied with that, you still don't want to live on in judgment for eternity. But that is a reality we cannot avoid, friends. You're not writing the script of heaven. Judgment is as sure as anything. God reigns. God is good. He will not put up with sin forever. He will eventually judge his creation. He has promised us as much. And friend, let me, let me assure you of this. Apart from God, you would not have achieved what you want anyway. Even if you could somehow get away from him, you're getting away from the source of joy and the source of life. You are separating yourself from, from the very nucleus of happiness and contentment if you try to live apart from him. With him, there is a superior wisdom guiding you. With him, there is a foundation for all other wisdom. And this is the foundation that Solomon has tried to give us throughout this whole book. The conclusion of the matter will be to trust the Lord God despite our uncertainties, despite our question marks, to trust the one who knows all things and governs what he has made. This principle applies to faithfulness, friends. It also applies to benevolence. When we think about this idea of of working and applying ourselves to active obedience, even if we can't see the result, even if we don't know how it will turn out, it most definitely applies to the way that we share what we have with others. We cannot look at charitable giving in the same way that we look at investments. 
There are times when our gift will not produce the solutions that we want it to in the people we're trying to help. And there will be other times when our generosity makes us a victim of someone else's cunning ploy. We can't avoid that, friends, entirely. Nevertheless, we must be a giving people, knowing that we have been commanded to do so, and knowing that by example, Jesus has set this standard of generosity by not only giving love and healing and wisdom, but by giving his own life. He spared nothing for the sinners that he chose to love and redeem. We so often want to skimp in the terms of generosity. We want to be very, very miserly in the way that we help. We would turn wine into water to save a few pennies. We want to get away with giving less. Are we tight-fisted with our stewardship? Or do we trust that God ultimately knows where these gifts will go and how He intends to use them to bring about His perfect will? Remember verse 2 said, You know not what disaster may happen upon the earth. Will we use this as an excuse to hoard for ourselves? Oh, I can't give to you. I don't know what bad thing is down the road for me. Yes, I have extra, but I can't spare it for you because I need to keep that in case something goes wrong in my path. Is that how we're going to use verse 2? Or are we going to use it in a way that is generous, in a way that mimics the giving heart of God? I have an opportunity to give to you right now. God has given me abundance now. And maybe later on in life, I won't have as many resources to share. So by all means, now that I have much, may I be generous and give much to others. I don't know if I'll be able to enjoy that giving later. So that what God has given to me now becomes what God can use for His glory right now. It applies to benevolence. This principles that Solomon gives to us also applies to our evangelism. Our efforts to reach people with the gospel often require relatively high amounts of time, of energy, and of patience. Evangelism, friends, begins in prayer. It doesn't begin in a conversation. It begins in prayer at the throne of God as we bow before Him. Are we willing to take the time to lift up the lost before the Lord? Trusting that our hours that we spend pleading for their souls is not time wasted, even if those individuals never come to the point of believing in Jesus Christ. Evangelism is often a long-term endeavor. We may become pessimistic with those that we have tried to reach before and think to ourselves, it didn't work last time. Why would I spend my efforts on evangelizing that person now? What's changed? We may paralyze ourselves with worry over how that person will react if I try to talk to them about something so controversial as faith in Jesus Christ. But listen to the way the Apostle Paul spoke of those who came to the Lord in response to his evangelism and the evangelism of the other apostles. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, and just think about the heart behind these words. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Think about that, friends. The Apostle Paul is 
imagining forward to when Christ returns for his church and he gathers them to himself. And an account is called forward to be given of the lives that these believers spent before the Lord God in an obedience to him. And he says, what is going to be our joy and our crown and our hope? What will we rejoice in in that moment? Will it not be the fact that as we were obedient to the Lord, that God's mighty hand worked through his church to bring about more reconciliation, to redeem more lost sinners from the pit of hell and darkness and bring them into light. And he did that using humble means as us. Isn't that amazing that God would work that way through us? No, friend, you don't know if all that effort is going to reap any reward at all. I've spoken to missionaries in places where the soil seems very, very hard. Men and women who have loved the Lord God and had a heart for a lost people. And year after year after year, they preach the gospel where they can and how they may. They do everything they can to reach the faces and the names of the people that they have met on the streets and in their day-to-day interactions. And some go decades and never see one convert. And yet they wake up every day with hope renewed that perhaps today will be the day that God reaches someone through the words I bring. Maybe today we will see the first of many in this land which right now is desolate, but may one day be vibrant with fruit for God. No matter how hard the work and whether or not we get to see the fruit of it at all, we must be faithful to the commission and leave the results up to our God. And finally, we must apply this to prayer. And there are several other areas of our life where this principle of moving forward in faith, even though we can't see the result, could apply. But let us end by applying this to our prayers. Many have used uh, this quarantine time to step up their spring cleaning at home. I've, I was in... Uh, the hardware store the other day and was amazed at how busy it was. There were so many people going through the aisles, picking up project materials so that they can go and make this house that they are sequestered in a little more comfortable. They've decided that now they will try to fix the things which before they didn't have time to get to. And I find that when I'm doing work around the house, the most satisfying jobs to me, in the moment at least, are often the ones that we see the biggest difference in immediately. I love to go out to a lawn that is full of tall grass. I love to see all the weeds and the cracks and the overgrown bushes. I like to spend a couple of hours with, with the lawnmower and the weed whacker and then to be able to see and smell and sense that everything is now finally in order. You get, an immediately, you get immediate gratification from going out and mowing your lawn and putting your, your yard back to looking good again. But some of the most important jobs are not about some huge difference that you can immediately see. When you're out shopping for your groceries and one of the employees is robotically wiping down every shopping cart handle with a Clorox wipe, you don't necessarily see the impact that that effort and work is making. But you've sure come to appreciate that it's accomplishing something important, whether you see it or not, haven't you? I'm grateful for those individuals who are trying to do all they can to keep us from getting sick so that we don't have to suffer through a a, a serious disease, which could even put us in the hospital. The things that Christians do to honor the Lord probably 
are seen by those who don't trust in Jesus Christ like a practical waste of time. Some scoff at our prayer and demand that we get up off our knees and act. I've seen more and more bold criticism of Christians who hear of a tragedy and then respond by saying, we must pray over this. And then the non-believing world turns to us with vitriol and says, how could you waste time with your eyes closed and your head bowed when action needs to be made? Friends, I would posture to you that no greater action is made than when you are on your knees appealing to the only one who determines how things will turn out. Some laugh at us for spending part of the precious weekend of rest under the teaching of some ancient book that hasn't been relevant to cent- for centuries in their eyes. Many see our praises to God and our, our voices lifted up as nothing more than empty liturgy because they lack the love for God that we have come to adore. This God who is so generous and so kind, this God who has showed us such incredible mercy and patience because they don't know this God, they don't see the worship of this God as worth time. And you wouldn't see it either, friend, if it were not for the transformation that Christ has brought about in you. When God found you, and began to turn your heart away from yourself, when he began to help you to understand the weight of your sin, you weren't seeking for him. You were fighting against him. You were upset at his reign over you. You were burdened by the love he wanted to give. But if you're a believer, it's because at some point in your life, God began to wake you up. He began to point out what needed to change in you. He began to make it very clear that you didn't have the tools to change what needed to change in you. And I can guarantee you, friend, that that transformation was preceded by somebody else seeing the importance of prayer, praying for your lostness, praying for you to understand the great blessing you could have if you would only trust in Jesus Christ. Prayer doesn't always seem to have a practical outflow for us. We don't always understand the things that prayer accomplishes. We don't get to speak and see things done. That is God's job and God's power alone. But we, friends, who are called after God, must be a people of prayer. And it is through prayer that we will begin to really embrace the principles that this passage of Scripture instills in our hearts today as we turn our attention and focus to the one who is in control, we will no longer feel the obsessive need to be in control ourselves. We cannot allow the scoffing of the lost world to deter us from doing what we know is important. We know what God has commanded and his commands are not frivolous. Think of the woman who came to Christ just before he was crucified. And in her hand, she held an alabaster flask containing an oil that was so precious, so rare, that it would cost a year's wages to buy that little vial. And she broke it open, and she began to pour it out lavishly on the feet of her Savior. And many saw that action and thought, what a waste. Why would you 
put such an investment on the floor like that to the dirtiest part of Jesus, you could have taken that and used it for some other good. Was this woman casting her bread upon the water, never to see it return? No. She was loving Jesus, the one who deserves more than anything else in this universe to be the object of our love and affection. She was not casting her bread upon the waters only to see it sink or become soggy. She was investing wisely by obeying the Lord God and honoring, her with her, honoring Him with her everything. Remember that even the cross seemed wasteful to the disciples. The disciples who wanted to see God's kingdom come And when they first heard Jesus begin to speak about how he would be nailed to a cross, he would be executed for his righteousness. They denied that Jesus would have to go through that. They couldn't imagine it. They couldn't fathom that the Messiah that God would send would allow himself to be put to death. What a waste, they thought. And yet they would soon see the beauty of the plan that God had in store for them they would eventually look back upon that cross not as a waste, but as the very portal to their life. That through that cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection of God's Son, those who deserve to be punished and set apart from Him eternally could have their debt paid in full by His blood, that they might stand before Him washed and clean and with the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself accounted to them. Do not second guess God's plan, friend. Embrace your responsibility and trust the results of life to God. Father God, we thank you for your word, which sometimes seems so contrary to our reason. We've gone through a period in history where the Enlightenment has tried to teach us that there is nothing we can trust more than our own intellect. Lord God, how many failures of mind do we have to put ourselves through before we realize that our intellect are limited things, often erroneous, often wrong. Lord God, let us suffer as much as necessary from our own mistaken grandeur, our ideas that we know, that we can understand, that we can direct and determine our life the way we want to. Allow us to suffer as much as is necessary before our eyes will be opened up to the truth that we are only content when we trust you and your greater mind. Lord God, our great confidence needs to be in you, the giver and the sustainer of life. I pray, God, that we would not waste our days, that we would not make excuses, that we would not put off faith until later, that we would not put off obedience until a different time when it is more convenient, Lord, but that every hour of every day we would learn to trust you and that we would obey your commands, knowing, Lord, that you are working an eternal weight of glory through what you do in our lives. We love you. We thank you for your grace, Jesus. We pray this all in your perfect name. Amen.